Welcome to BioCentury this week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by Simona Fishburne, editor in chief, Selena Koch, executive editor, Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. As Silicon Valley Bank finds a buyer, we have takeaways from our survey of VCs, plus an FDA panel helps the case for a new surrogate endpoint in ALS, and will the latest oncology guidance from FDA mean more early clinical costs for biotechs? BioCentury this week is sponsored by Jado Capital, a leading global private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking innovation. Jado empowers and supports managers through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team, and by investing significant capital to ensure the growth of companies, building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients access globally in Europe and the US in particular. Based in Paris with a presence elsewhere in Europe and in the US, Jado has more than 500 million euros under management and a rapidly growing portfolio of investments. Already two weeks after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, First Citizens out of North Carolina, based in Raleigh, is buying much of the bank, which has been a key institution for biotechs for more than 40 years. So the question is, will companies who have their money in the bank be inclined to stay now that it has a new owner? And will those who left during the collapse, will they come back? These are some of the questions we asked VCs a week or so ago as part of a survey of biotech VCs. Simone, you helped lead the charge here. What did we find out? So um, thanks, Jeff. First, first of all, I want to tell you, and we can go a little bit into the, the results of the survey. We surveyed 68 VCs in the US, uh, Europe, and China, biotech VCs, of course. And um, they were all very eager to respond, meaning that they all took good use of the uh, write-in comments field that we provided them, and they had plenty to say. So um, I think on the question that you're asking, obviously this predated the announcement. You know, almost all of the survey respondents indicated one way or another, they were contemplating or would or were inclined to go back to a Silicon Valley bank successor. Only one or two of them said, no, I wouldn't go back under any circumstances. Most people wanted to know who the owner would be. The answer was, it depends on who the new owner is. So they've got that question answered now, and we will be going back and saying, you know, how's this one work for you? You know, I think, and I can talk a little bit about some of the, the responses said, I think there was some fear of it being a, a very big bank that SVB wouldn't be able to provide them, or the successor, sorry, wouldn't be able to provide them with the kind of services that they most valued in SVB. This is not a quote unquote, very big bank. So I don't know. We will, as I said, get back to you all on, on how they're digesting this. Some people wanted to know who the management team would be. And, you know, a small but not insignificant number said they'd already started sending money back. 
But I do want to say another thing. No one is sending all of their deposits back. Anybody who had all of their money in a deposit account there is diversifying. We've talked about that on the last few calls. Yes, Simone, your comment there about the depositors, that that certainly was something that came up in my conversation with JP Morgan's Mike Gato last week. No surprise there, really. Are there still concerns out there, Simone? So look, there are concerns. I think it's important to kind of tease those concerns apart. So, you know, we wondered whether this, you know, this is obviously going to increase the cost of capital. And we wondered whether this was going to slow or even halt company formation, make it harder for people to, for companies or good companies to uh, raise money. And on the whole, people said, no, they're like, yeah, we're a little bit worried about the rising cost of capital, but not in a major way. We don't think, and nobody, very, very few people thought that it was going to sort of bring a sort of a hammer down on, on company formation. But the reason for that is not such a good reason. The reason for that is that the market was so bad anyway. So they yeah. kind of think like, we were already in this biotech winter, so this isn't the one that's making the difference. Um, at the same time, I don't want to suggest that this isn't a pivot point. I think that it's very clear from the way people talked about it. This has really, really sort of shocked the biotech ecosystem, certainly the venture capital ecosystem. And there are some basic things that will change, such as small companies needing a proper treasury policy. I, I think some of the large ones already had that and maybe had good practices, but you know, company founders, small companies understanding that they really need to look at that. And then, you know, one area that we're going to continue to follow that, that people are really split on is that SVB was a, a very big provider of venture debt. Now, some people say, not that big a deal. That was more important for tech than biotech. And there's plenty of other places you can get venture debt from. And other people sort of said, SVB understood us. They were the ones that would give us reasonable terms, venture debt, there's going to be a hole there. So, you know, that was one area where people were big, were split. And I think that that was one of the u- unique features for many people about SVB and the way they really understood biotechs. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're looking at uh, right now, the way things are going, the cost of debt is certainly poised to explode even beyond venture debt. But with this winter that biotech has been in, venture debt has become increasingly important. And as you say, uh, a key player, uh, things have just shifted now. And uh, we'll certainly something we'll be watching what the, the contours of venture debt are over the coming months. Access to capital, still the story. Um, One more note, I would mm-hmm. just say uh, we have a story on this. There'll be a slide deck coming out. You know, we're not going to get into it on this call, but on this podcast. But if you're interested to know how VCs think about it, they got more and more colorful when they talked about who was to blame. So (laughs) (laughs) some of those quotes are going to be in there, but some of them will be sanitized, should we say. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, let's head over to FDA. A couple of big, big pieces of news uh, last week that we'd like to analyze for you. Uh, Neurofilament appears to be on track to become the first surrogate endpoint for ALS after an FDA advisory committee unanimously voted in favor of accelerated approval. 
of Topherson from Biogen and Ionis based on the biomarker. Selena, you tuned into the panel. What did you learn? What caught your ear? Right. Well, we can talk about Topherson and its merits. That's sort of one conversation, but maybe let's start with neurofilament and accelerated approval for, for ALS. So the acceptance of any surrogate endpoint is maybe a little bit of a departure for this indication. FDA's guidance on ALS drug development states that given the rapid progression of the disease, um, here I have it here, I can quote, it is feasible and most efficient to establish clinical benefit based on clinical endpoints capable of supporting full approval. And it says in general, that benefit can be established in trials of practicable size and duration, i.e. six to 12 months. So basically, historically, FDA has had the stance that, look, you can measure hard clinical endpoints in six to 12 months. Why would you need accelerated approval? That said, any guidance that FDA has, of course, is um, not set in stone, and they reserve the right to look at every case on a case-by-case basis on its own, its own circumstances. So here we are, four years later, <laughs> 2023, Kofrison hands over the sort of scenario in which it might make sense to go with uh, a surrogate endpoint, even though the, the data on the clinical endpoint is in and, and missed its mark. So maybe the first thing to say about the advisory committee is that meeting is that this was not amyloid all over again. It's really is a very different situation. First of all, FDA asked the advisors to discuss the possibility of an accelerated approval and the possibility of a full approval in a public way during the meeting. That didn't happen for aducanumab. If you'll remember, it took a lot of people by surprise when after the advisory panel you know, gave oh, yes. a big, big thumbs down for full approval, yeah. kind of out of nowhere, there came this, uh, this accelerated approval based on an endpoint with so much baggage. So that's the other big difference, right? Like amyloid had a mountain of failed trials where the agents were designed to lower amyloid levels as the target and they one after another had failed. You know, we don't have that with neurofilament. It's just a different kind of a biomarker. So filaments are really abundant structural components and axons, like the part of the neuron that sends a signal on to the next one. And when axons are degenerating or when they have an injury, these structural filaments, they can leak out. And because they're abundant, you can see a fairly robust signal in the cerebral spinal fluid or even in the plasma. So it kind of stands to reason that a drug that would slow degeneration might decrease this signal, the amount of neurofilament that's leaking into cerebral spinal fluid. And there are quite a number of longitudinal studies showing that neurofilament is upregulated in various neurodegenerative diseases and maybe more so in ALS than others, and that it has prognostic value. The amount that it's upregulated correlates with important things like rate of progression and survival and other things. Now, the one thing that you could say maybe was missing from that picture was the demonstration that a therapeutic agent can lower it and lead to clinical benefit, right? And this trial failed to show clinical benefit in a fairly spectacular way based on its primary endpoint. Placebo and treatment were basically the same on the this kind of standard clinical rating scale with the p-value that was almost one. It was like, I forget, it was like 0.97, I think. <laughs> And Tristan Massey, FDA statistical reviewer, you know, he gave this really great quote that it's really challenging to, how do you put it, quote, assess whether a drug effect on a biomarker predicts a drug effect on clinical outcome from a study that did not provide evidence of an effect on the clinical outcome. 
Now, that said, <clears throat> this whole thing hinges on Tofferson's open label. So Tofferson, yeah, failed to show efficacy in the six-month window, but they kept following these patients in the open label. And because it, they showed it takes some time to move the, first, the target the biomarker of targeting agent, SOD1, and then neurofilament, it takes like 16 weeks to get maximal change in neurofilament. Those patients that were in the placebo arm but are now on treatment, they weren't going to show benefit for a bit if they were going to show it at all, right? So what they showed is that the two lines, the original treatment group and the original placebo group, they did separate from each other, given a little bit more time. And so FDA's argument was that is a powerful signal that this drug does in fact work. It's the right kind of drug. It targets this is a monogenically defined subset of the disease that targets that product of that mutant gene. It moves neurofilament. And if you would have just looked a little bit longer, you would have seen benefit. And all of that together went over the, the committee members for the vote. Thanks. That was very, very interesting and you know detailed response. But I, I just want to very quickly, for our audience and for me, actually, want to know what, what do you think is going to be the knock-on consequence of this beyond this particular therapeutic? Right. So other companies in the field working on ALS drug development are watching this very closely. And I've had a few of them just say, this is going to be a game changer, the ability to use neurofilament as a surrogate endpoint. Even though you can conduct these trials in the space of six, nine, 12 months, they seem to be aligning on this trial design where the open label becomes the key place where efficacy is shown. And so <laughs> you're going to see it. You know, I had one person tell me these were used to be, you could elect to have an open label or not, but now they're absolutely mandatory. And that's where you're going to show survival and function. And so you're going to show that neural filament changes, you're going to get the approval, and then you're going to keep watching, and then you're going to use the open label to confirm that benefit. And that's how it's going to go. But it might go that way. There's certainly a lot of hope that it will go that way, but that's not what's happening with Tofersen. So FDA did not say, we're going to allow them to confirm benefit on that open label. What they've said is, guess what? Biogen has a fully enrolled other trial. Even though this is an exceedingly rare indication, there's only like 300 and some patients in the US estimated by Biogen. What they're doing to confirm benefit is they're having a separate trial in pre-symptomatic patients because this is a biomarker, this is a genetically defined population that can identify people before they get symptoms. And that is going to be the primary data that see accelerated approval to a full, assuming it all goes according to plan, right? So the idea that you can just measure neurofilament as a co-primary endpoint at whatever week, 16 weeks, 28 weeks, and then keep following patients in the open label and convert that, that's kind of remains, remains to be seen. If FDA is going to go for that, it did not make that argument in this case. All right, Selena, thanks for the details there. And we do have an expected decision date of April 25th for FDA to weigh in after it absorbs the feedback from its advisory committee. All right, staying with FDA, uh, the agency's revamp of accelerated approval continues. Draft guidance issued last week reflects Richard Pazder's promise to make single arm studies the exception rather than the norm. Let me bring in Lauren here. She's been following this. Lauren, what are the implications 
of this new guidance? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so the guidance recommends, and of course there are exceptions, that companies run randomized control studies to support accelerated approvals of oncology drugs. So it provides two examples of the types of studies that would be acceptable. One is the traditional pre-market study and then a, a separate confirmatory trial. And the only difference there would be that the pre-market study would be randomized and controlled, which often that's not the case. Often it's a single arm study. And then the other trial design that they're recommending would be a single trial that has two sets of endpoints, you know, a, a surrogate or intermediate type endpoint of ORR or and DOR probably, and then an event-based longer-term endpoint like PFS. The study, the first endpoints would be for the accelerated approval and the second set would be for confirmation. So the implications, I think, are that, you know, this is a huge departure from what biopharma companies have been doing. When we looked at the set of cancer-accelerated approvals since the beginning of last year, none were based on randomized control trials. We found 14, 10 of those were decisions based on single-arm studies, two were other non-randomized trial designs, and two were randomized trials, but they weren't controlled to a placebo. They were, one was randomized for different doses, and one was randomized for a monotherapy and a combination therapy, both with the experimental arm. Lauren, in your story that you wrote in by essentially very nice story analyzing it, you talked about this being an extra burden for biotech companies, and right now you've just said explained rather that this is a sort of departure from the way things have been. So I want to bring in another angle that came up in my interview with Gilead CMO, Madad Parsi. And he kind of looks at the various things that FDA has been doing recently, in particular in oncology, that actually will make it harder for small companies and that are a departure from the way things have been done. And he sees this as this is almost like the price of success. The innovation bar has gone up. People did do it in those days because they had to, because there weren't other ways to get good drugs or, you know, approved or tested even. And, you know, his way of thinking about it is the bar has gone up and it is harder for small companies, but they, and he's been in a small company, by the way, he's, he's been, you know, both sides, big and small companies. But that's part of the cost of doing business. That's not his words, but mine. And it's more like the state of innovation means you have to raise the bar and it can be harder and drug development is hard. It's not really about making it easier for companies to get the trials done. Exactly. I think it's hard to argue that this is not overall a positive thing, you know, the, the collection of, of new guidance and changes that have happened. I mean, with so the, you think except, that for patients, this, this is a, a benefit? For, for patients, of course, it's a benefit. It's this, and I don't know if this was what started it, but it, this became a topic of conversation about a year ago with the PI3 kinase delta inhibitors and the fact that an important safety signal was missed in the trials because they were single arm studies and they weren't looking at overall survival. And that was what FDA now expects there was a detrimental effect of this therapy on overall survival. So that's an example of where this can go wrong. A lot of times, you know, single arm studies are fine and, you know, things are not missed. But I think this is just taking a step back and getting more information to make sure that the safest and most effective drugs are getting to patients as quickly as possible through this. You know, of course, it means more patients in earlier stage trials. It's sort of changing 
where the costs happen in clinical development. So there will be a higher bar for what enters the clinic at first. All right. And Lauren's story is up on biocentury.com. You can check it out there. If you want to listen into Simone's conversation with Murdad Farsi, that is easily found at biocentury.com. It'll be up on the Biocentury YouTube channel later this week as well. Just Google Biocentury Show YouTube and you will come right to that. Coming up this week, We've been talking a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act. We will have a webinar on the IRA moderated by Washington editor Steve Usden. We've got some great guests lined up. That will be March 30th. Go to biocenturyira.com to learn more. And of course, our spring conference, Bioequity Europe, coming to Dublin, Ireland, May 14th, 16th bioequityeurope.com. You can see the presenting companies and you can get more information there. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thank you for tuning in.